we are in uh, the middle of a series on the gospel in the nations, and uh, today we're going to be looking at uh, Buddhism. And next week, we're going to be talking about uh, Islam, and then the week after that, Hinduism, and then right after. One of the reasons we picked these is because we have experience and ministry going on in these areas. There's so many religions we could pick to, the, to look at, and we chose five. Now, two weeks from today, as soon as I'm done preaching, I'm catching the shuttle down to uh, fly to Kathmandu, Nepal, which is a Hindu, formerly Hindu country. And I do a lot of teaching there in both Buddhist and Hindu environments. And so we do have experience. We want to talk to you about Buddhism today. Um, when we talk about Buddhism, Buddhism is a very complex religion with a lot of variation, similar to Hinduism. So we're not going to be talking about cultural Buddhism, which many of you will have experienced from those in Hollywood and what you find from people from Boulder and some of the people who live up here in the mountains. Okay, That's a convenient form of Buddhism. Now, we want to get to some two or three of the core tenets of Buddhism that differentiate Buddhism from uh, Christianity and that significantly influences the way they live within culture. But first, I want to say a couple of words about the history of Buddhism. Buddhism comes from a word, a very ancient word, that means to awaken, to, to become enlightened, to uh, be, begin to see truth clearly. It has its origins around 2,500 years ago, roughly 563 B.C., and uh, give or take a month. And uh, that's when a man was himself awakened, enlightened, who was known as the Buddha at the age of 35. He was raised Hindu. Uh, specifically from Nepal. He was raised Hindu, and as he grew, he began to disagree with some of the teachings that he had been raised with, specifically two areas, the spiritual value of the caste system. We're going to talk about the caste system in two weeks when we get to Hinduism uh, because it's very important to understand it. It's a central part of the way they operate and live together. But the second uh, part he disagreed with was the divine character of their gods. In Hinduism, there's 330 million gods, and he disagreed with that whole concept. So he was raised in the highest caste below the Brahmin caste. So in Hinduism, the caste system, the top caste is the Brahmin caste. That's the priestly caste. And then you kind of have what I think of as the working caste below that. And you go on down to the bottom, which is the Dalit or the, uh, the untouchables, the caste there. We'll talk about that in two weeks. He was born in the caste right below the Brahmin caste, which was the wealthiest caste. So he was born, raised in, born and raised in a wealthy family. He took his beliefs seriously, but soon he began to see how bankrupt wealth was in the spiritual life. He was troubled by the suffering that he saw among his own common people that weren't in his caste, and he struggled with a caste system, a theology that could produce this, a religion. That's one of the things we've been looking at, isn't it, is the impact of every one of these religions within their own culture. So he struggled with that. So he adopted a lifestyle outside of the caste system. He became a wandering religious ascetic. He uh, chose to live off of alms and devoted himself to extreme somberness. Well, this led him to adopt a very extreme aesthetic lifestyle. When we say aestheticism, what we mean is avoiding all forms of indulgence. Putting them aside, have nothing to do with them. That's what aestheticism is. So he, he adopted a very extreme form of that. He soon realized that this was just as bankrupt as well. It didn't help his spirituality any. And so it didn't bring the peace that he longed for. And so he tried to craft a middle way, which we now know some of the core tenets of what called Buddhism. The, the actual writings of Buddhism were about 400 years after that. So just 100, 150 years before Christ is when the Buddhist writings began to uh, uh, surface. 
He practiced the middle way, what he thought of as moral living through meditative practice. Now, most of us, when we think of moral living, we think of moral living in the way we impact others, not to hurt people, to do good things to people, that sort of thing, contribute to society. He chose a different way, moral living through meditative practice. This led to the basic Buddhist concept that the highest wisdom, that's what they call it, otherwise known as true enlightenment, is beyond all cultural and social constructs. In other words, you can't figure it out in this life. Because be social and cultural constructs is where we live. Society is us. It's us. And when you come to the conclusion that we need to set all that aside, then what that means is we can't get there. This, uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but this, uh, when you look at the Greek philosophers, three or four hundred, um, no, that's not true, about the same time that he lived, the Greek philosophers taught that. Plato taught that uh, you can never achieve true enlightenment in this world. You have to escape the confines of the material world to get there. We'll come back and talk about how Christianity compares with that. So some of the basics to Buddhist philosophy is that life is seen as temporary and all life necessarily involves suffering. This is the path that leads to what's known as nirvana or freedom. Okay? True freedom, nirvana, comes through suffering and emptying of the self. Now think about what our Bible teaches. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Okay? Our version of the truth differs from Buddhist philosophy's version of the truth, and we're going to talk about that. So the path to freedom involves suffering. This led... Buddhism to develop a more personal-centered, interior-based set of practices, very individualistic. Those practices we now know, we call, refer to as meditation and mantras. That's at the heart of Buddhist philosophy. The gods and the spiritual forces that are found in Hinduism, they begin to become secondary within Buddhist principles. There's a lot of overlap between Buddhism and Hinduism. If you're over in the countries, you'll see that. But they began to be, take second place in the, the spiritual searching, because spiritual searching had to do with the individual. It's on your shoulders. Since the gods of Hinduism were no longer critical, Buddhism then became very adaptable to all local cultures. This explains why it grew so rapidly as now the fourth largest religion in the world, because it'll adapt things from each culture um, as long as you maintain that core tenet of emptying the self. History and culture are illusory. This is another principle not to be relied on. They're illusory. They don't represent reality. They only inhibit one's journey to true enlightenment. So the various gods and spiritual forces are only stages along the way that influence conditions in the world. But that's not the goal. The end goal is true enlightenment, to see the world as it truly is. In order to achieve this true enlightenment, this freedom, this nirvana, one must empty themselves completely of all cultural and social thinking. They have to become nothing. Empty themselves completely of everything. I asked the Buddhist monks in Kathmandu, has anyone ever done that? And they said, Buddha. The rest of us are trying to get there. 
This is accomplished through the meditative practices and the repetition of these mantras that have no significance. If you talk to the the Buddhists in the various Buddhist countries, the mantras are basically, from my perspective, they're meaningless. They're nonsensical. Their purpose is to unfocus the mind away from distractions. And if the mantras themselves were significant, that's what you would focus on. And so their mantras are nonsensical. They, they are designed to disconnect you, to unfocus your mind from everything in your world so that you really do empty yourself. Since the gods and spiritual forces only influence our conditions, what's most important is proper ritual and meditation. This is what appeases the spiritual forces, keeps them at bay, and makes it easier to achieve true enlightenment. So if you speak to a Buddhist, uh, a true Buddhist, not a cultural Buddhist, as we find in our country, they are very disciplined, very disciplined in their practices. Buddhism focuses on the liberation of the self, and we're liberating ourselves specifically from passions and cravings. That's what asceticism is all about, to remove every indulgence and to take it out of our discussion, out of our world you can. It involves a total denial of the self or emptying oneself from all distractions. This is what will lead to enlightenment. It also is what they believe will lead to penetrating insight into the true nature of things. And this enlightenment is gained solely through strict disciplines and one's own effort. You really are on your own. You really are on your own and it's you and your own little world to achieve the state of nirvana or nothingness. The focus is entirely on the present, as there is no thought given to uh, the one true God, to eternity, any of those things. So it's always based on the present. There's no beginning or end in Buddhism. The soul lives forever in various forms. All that matters is the journey to enlightenment through the denial of life. These are the core tenets of Buddhism. So it is based solely on the present, but it's only on the present with respect to how to avoid it, not how to engage it. So hopefully by now you see that our religion is very different because we have a very opposite perspective on engagement. Theirs is to avoid it. So it's focused focus right now on avoiding any indulgence, anything, and emptying the self. So when you look at the way Buddhism impacts its culture, um, As I've said, I think that that is the true test of any religion. Living an ethical life is secondary. This is an important principle. Living an ethical life is secondary to the process of emptying the mind. Or let me reverse it. Emptying the mind is more important than ethical living. This means that social justice issues are prayed for rather than engaged in. Okay? When you're overseas in a, in a Buddhist country, something traumatic happens, you'll see the Buddhists there praying but not doing anything to help. Um, that's, not, that's not important to them. Let me show you some pictures. Go ahead and put them up, especially uh, the last two. Well, in fact, this one right here, when you, when you go through these, you can see these Buddhists sitting out in front of the Buddhist temple in Kathmandu. If you'll notice, keep going. As you get in there, look at the hand railings. You can see how large they are. They're very, very large. These are all pictures from the Buddhist temple. There's one where you can see the hand railings. Um, they're very large, gold-plated. Go to, the, go to the, uh, the last two. 
This is a picture of the Buddhist monks. In Buddhism, the second son of a monk becomes a monk, and they're donated to the temple. Give donated there. They're given to the temple to be raised in the temple. And so these are the young boys that are kind of initiates, if you will, to Buddhism. And they live there their whole life until they take their Buddhist vows in adulthood um, in their late 20s, early 30s, somewhere in there. And what they're doing is uh, the monks are explaining, teaching them the mantras, again, which have no significance or meaning, so that they can say them over and over again. If you look at the next picture, this is a picture right around the corner of uh, the Buddhist monks are in the orange and red. The white are, uh, those in white are uh, kind of initiates. They're, they're, they're trying to adopt Buddhism. And then you have a lot of tourists doing the same thing. And what they'll do is they will, this is their concept, almost what we would think of as worship, but it's not worship to them. What they're doing is they're bowing and saying their mantras. They bow and they say all their mantras. And when they're done, they get up and they walk around the temple seven times and they come and kneel back down and they say all their mantras. This is what they do all day long. All right. Uh, how vastly different than our engagement with each other in worship and with what we believe is the one true God, right? Their whole goal is to empty themselves of all thought, and our goal is the opposite. So life, ethical living is secondary to the process of emptying the mind. That's true, pure Buddhism. Um, by the way, uh, they have taken criticism for this, and so the modern Buddhist scholars are beginning to develop the concept of engaged Buddhism, they call it, figure out how to overcome this deficit without being in conflict with the idea of emptying yourself. So how do we actually engage? There's a picture of the fountain. On one side it says, uh, throw, your, throw your money in and make a wish, and right behind it, on the right, it says, uh, pray for world peace, which is a very common Buddhist thing. I've challenged, I've asked the students over there, and, I, uh, and I've challenged the students in America, name me one Buddhist who's done anything to accomplish anything significant for world peace. Can't think of one. The most we can think of is the Dalai Lama who's come up with some great sayings. But they're not, they're not interested in the ethical side of things. They're interested in emptying the mind. They really are. It has become popular in the West for those searching for stress reduction to adopt Buddhism without understanding the metaphysical philosophy that undergirds the whole thing. So Buddhism for Buddhists in our country largely becomes a technique rather than awareness of one's value in eternal life. Meditation is a way to relieve stress. That's the primary way American Buddhists operate, but that's not what happens in the Buddhist countries. That's not how they think about it. There is no God, and since there is no God, one can adopt the technique without the accompanying ethical standards of how to live life and grow to maturity. Okay, let's talk for just a moment about the influence that we bring. This is my 18th year teaching in uh, Buddhist and Hindu countries. Um, by the way, we picked these five because we have a lot of engagement with these religions in some part of the world. Our church does. So when we talked about Haiti, for instance, we have a team leaving in around Easter time to go down there. I'm going to Nepal in a couple of weeks. So we're very engaged in, in walking this through. So I have uh, 18 years of, of working with students who are all very recent Buddhist and Hindu converts, um, many of them within just three months, two or three months of accepting the Lord and converting to Christianity to become students. So as we've had these discussions over the years, these are some of the things that come to light. How different are we than Buddhism, and what impact or influence do we bring within the Buddhist culture? Well, first of all, we believe that true enlightenment comes from the Lord, not from the denial of self. Uh, the concept of nirvana, if you can empty your mind completely, that's when you'll enjoy freedom, 
That's when you'll enjoy enlightenment. That's when you'll enjoy joy, peace. But what does Galatians 5 say to us? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? We could go on and list them all. And so we believe that, that these things come to us not through emptying the mind, but as a gift from the Lord. Rather than emptying ourselves, we believe in filling ourselves with the Spirit of God. That's where they come from. One of the core beliefs. Rather than emptying the mind, we believe we are to use our mind to think accurately and positively. So listen to Paul's closing words in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. Do you hear that? It doesn't say rejoice through emptying your mind. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. So not only am I not trying to avoid engaging in your life, it's the opposite. I want to move into your life. Let your gentleness be evident to everyone around you. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Okay, so I'll read you the verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but empty your mind, and you will enjoy peace. That's not what it says, is it? Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, bring your requests before the Lord. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will come to you after you empty your minds. No, no. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, I love this one. Whatever is lovely, whatever is beautiful, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Engage our mind to enjoy the creation and the world around us. We live in the present to both enjoy and learn from the present. It's not the opposite. We're not trying to avoid it. We're trying to enjoy it and learn from it. Often when I'm talking to people that, don't, that aren't Christian and I talk about creation, I say God has given us creation for two reasons. One is to help you learn about him. There's someone bigger out there. But the second one is have fun with it, to enjoy it. He made it for us. And that's something we understand in our county, isn't it? How to enjoy this place. It's hard. Sorry for those folks that were raised in Kansas, Texas, a few other places. But <laughs> it comes natural for us. Those are the two reasons, to learn about the Lord. So we learn from the present and we enjoy the present. That's what it's all about. We live in the present in order to impact the lives of others in sincere and practical ways. Then you have Christ's famous verse in John fourteen twenty one: Whoever has my commands and keeps them, this is the one that loves me. Now think about that. Your love is lived out by obeying Christ. And what are Christ's commands? You can't keep them by yourself. You can't. How do you love others if you're not in a relationship with anybody? How do you forgive one another 
there's no one to forgive. How to carry one of those burdens if there's no one's burdens to carry? Every one of those commands that we see, they require people and community. So whoever has my commands, this is what Christ said at the end of his time in the upper room, just before he died. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, this is the one who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father. And I too will love them, and I will disclose myself to them. That's enlightenment. Now, everybody in all of our spiritual formation literature, Christians, we're on the journey to experience Christ, aren't we? How do you experience Christ? You experience Christ through obedience. That's how. It's not a secret. Not a shortcut. Nothing magical. It's Christ chooses who he's going to reveal himself to, and he's going to reveal himself to those who obey. And here's what that looks like. Let me give you an example. We're told to forgive one another. Based on what? We naturally tend to think that we should forgive one another because they repent, because they apologize. No, that's not it at all. Paul says, forgive one another for Christ in heaven has already forgiven you. You forgive someone else because they're worthy of it, not because they think they're wrong. Same thing Christ said when he says, uh, do good to your enemies, love those who hate you. Turn the other cheek. It's not based on the other person. It's based on your willingness to forgive simply because every human is worth it. Because God already died on the cross and forgave. Practically, how does that lead to disclosure of Christ, to spiritual enlightenment? Here's what it looks like. It's easy to forgive when people apologize, isn't it? Isn't that easy? People hurry and they come back and say, I'm really sorry, I was wrong. Our natural disposition as Christians is to want to forgive. But what happens when they don't forgive? I mean, when they don't apologize. And you decide to forgive them anyway, which is the Christian tenet, to forgive anyway. Here's what happens. Somebody spits in your face and you forgive them. Somebody hurts you deeply and you forgive them. Someone takes advantage of your family and you forgive them. Someone takes something precious from you and you forgive them. After a while, you know, you discover this, apart from God, is impossible. And it hurts more than anything to forgive someone who refuses to apologize. And then you know what happens? There comes a day when you look into heaven and you say, is that what it was like to forgive me? And the answer is yes. Now you're on the verge of enlightenment. Because for the first time, you begin to understand how unworthy you truly are and how difficult it was for our God to look at you and say, I forgive you. And it wasn't because you repented. It's because of his deep love. You see how just the action of forgiveness does that? And that's just one. We could talk about all the actions in Scripture. So spiritual enlightenment comes because you practice it. That's when you begin to learn the truth about who you are and who the Lord is. My discussions with my students over the years 
has revealed a lot of different things to me. One is that true significance and value and our dignity is because we are made in the image of God. In every other religion, we start with the premise that you're not good enough. And you have to become something different. Enlightenment, emptying the mind in Buddhism, reincarnation, Hinduism. We could all name them, the different things. But in Christianity, you know what? When God made you, what did he say? (laughs) You are very good. This is fantastic. The centerpiece of my masterpiece, everything I've designed and created is you. And I love you just the way you are. And you know what? I don't want you to become something different. I don't want you to get reincarnated into a donkey. I want you to be you. I love you the way you are. 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 I don't want you to be different. What happens in Christianity is you become something better. You're being restored to true humanity. That's what it means to be transformed into the image of Christ. You're not becoming something different. And so true dignity Human dignity comes because of what Christianity teaches. We are made in the image of God. And we praise him for that, don't we? We do. That is a great thing. You people are sinful. You're cantankerous. You're hard to get along with. You're prickly at times. So am I. And I still love you anyway. Nancy and I were laughing because we had a fight last night. So Nancy said after the first sermon, Oh, I did a lot to help you this morning, didn't I? And I said, that's okay. I did a lot to help you this morning, didn't I? (laughs) And that's the way life is. I love you guys just the way you are and what Christ is turning you into. That's what's unique about Christianity. Father, thank you for sending us your son. Thank you for giving us truth, not to be hoarded, not to be avoided, not to empty ourselves of, but to be loved and shared with others, to be enjoyed. Thank you for that. Uh, We pray these in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering. And uh, thank you. You're the ones that make it all happen through your generosity. You take such good care of us. Thank you for your generosity and for making it possible for us to do ministry around the world in these different contexts. depths of peace when fears are stilled when striving cease my comforter all in all here in the love of Christ I Of love and righteousness, 
scorned by the ones he came to save. Held in cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Okay, now think carefully about the words on the night when Jesus was betrayed. On the night that he was betrayed, he said, I want you to empty yourself and forget all about what I did. (laughs) That's not what happened, is it? It's just the opposite. We fill ourselves. On the night that he was betrayed, took the bread and the cup. And then he says, remember me. Remember me. That's the heart of our Christian message is to think about what happened. So I'm going to give you just a short period of time to think about how the Lord has manifested himself to you and thank him for it. I'd like to invite some of you to come up and get us prepared to serve the cup and the bread and to pray. So come on up. I hope at no time during this series you hear us mocking the other religions because you know what they represent? They represent people are trying to do the same thing we are. They're trying to figure out life and make sense of it. What we're trying to do is strengthen your Christian faith by giving you a sense of what we believe is truth. That's really what we're trying to do. I have many friends who are Buddhists and Hindu. They're on that journey to try to make sense of it, just like we are. But when Christ said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free, I am the way, the truth, and the life, we believe that that true enlightenment comes through Christ. That's what we believe. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and what did he do? What did he do? Go ahead and say it. He broke it. Right? And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When you come forward, somebody will say, this is the body of Christ given for you. After supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's a new covenant, a new commitment, a new way of thinking that's different from the world. Do this in remembrance of me. When you come forward, somebody will say, the blood of Christ shed for you. That's what produces new covenant. For you that are visitors, this is how we close our time. Let's pray. Father, we delight in being your children. We delight in knowing you, not because we have a corner on the market on truth, but because we have found true freedom and enlightenment. We found you. We found eternal life. And we love celebrating that you have moved into our lives. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Come and uh, celebrate communion together.
talked about our love for children, didn't we? Did you see them uh, over here mentoring Summit? Thank you, Summit, for being up here and serving. That was great. You know, uh, we, we, have, we have been privileged to meet Christ and learn the truth. And it is the truth that sets us free. We're not to be obnoxious about it, not to be arrogant. We are to just be humble, humble and love people. That's what Christ did. And that's what we're told to do, to be that in the lives of people. And so um, as you're with your friends this week, just remember that everybody's trying to figure it out. They really are. We are blessed because God met us. And um, my prayer for my friends is that he will meet them too. So as you go out this week, I hope you enjoy the peace of Christ in your relationships. And enjoy. If you're not sure what people your friends think, ask them. Let them tell you what they think. They will. They'll love it. Go in peace. Have a great week.